WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Tuberculosis is responsible for around 10 million new infections annually, and it causes respiratory diseases in humans. Today, we're talking to Shelby Deco on her research about tuberculosis. Shelby, may you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, yes, my name is Shelby Deco. I am a fifth-year PhD student in Dr. Robert Abramovich's lab at MSU. And like Chelsea just said, I study mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the bacteria that causes tuberculosis disease. Thanks for joining us this morning, and it's very nice to meet you. Regarding tuberculosis, what aspects are you studying about tuberculosis? Yeah, so I really am trying to understand how the pathogen reacts to its host environment or host-related stresses. So in particular, we're interested in understanding how mycobacterium tuberculosis responds to acidic pH. And this is one of the many stresses that it comes in contact with when it's inside the human host. pH, temperature fluctuations, nitrosative oxidative stress just to name a few. But I'm really interested in trying to better understand how it senses and adapts to pH changes, both from in the macrophage and in vitro studies. Environmental stresses are very important to understand. When you say pH changes, what do you mean by that? So pH, it's basically a unit of measure to define how acidic or basic an environment is. So you can think of like acidity being how tart or how sour a lemon tastes. That would be something that's very acidic. And then something that is more basic would be milk. Thanks for explaining that, Shelby. And just to give our audience a reference to understand, water is what's considered to be that middle point between an acidic and a basic solution. So just to let our audience know that, don't worry, water is perfectly fine to drink. (laughs) And it's essential for our everyday life. Based on that description that you gave us, what does tuberculosis prefer? Is it more towards the acidic environments or does it prefer a basic environment? Inherently, the bug is going to want to live in a more basic environment because it is more amenable for its survival. But when it gets into the host environment and it comes in contact with these more acidic environments inside the host, More specifically, the macrophage cell, which is an immune cell that will take up the bacteria that is actually trying to kill the bacteria, that particular cell, the macrophage, is considered an acidic environment. And so when the bacteria is taken up by the macrophage, it is all of a sudden in a slightly acidic environment, which can either succumb to or it can try to sense and adapt to that change in environment, or in this case, change in pH, as one example. And so mycobacterium tuberculosis has mechanisms in place whereby it can modulate its physiology in order to live in an acidic environment. So it doesn't really, I wouldn't say like it, but it's got fallbacks in place that makes it amenable for that environment. It's interesting to me that even though it can survive in neutral environments, it can also survive in more acidic environments as well. Does tuberculosis react and behave differently whenever it's in different environments? Yes, absolutely. I've been talking a little bit about the changes in pH That's just one of the many stressors that it comes in contact with, and it will be able to sense and adapt accordingly. 
like I mentioned earlier, like temperature fluctuations, nutrient changes, nitrosative and oxidative stresses, which is just nitrogen and oxygen changes. So it, it comes in contact with a wide range of stresses. And my research is only focusing on one aspect of that, but there are many different types that it can respond to and adapt accordingly. It's really interesting how tuberculosis can adapt to its environment depending on what pH it's in. Early in this interview, you were talking about how you're doing in vitro versus macrophage studies. What is the difference between those two? When I'm talking about in vitro, I'm talking about a type of methodology of studying my microorganisms that I'm working with, but this can expand to really all aspects of biology. In vitro is with liquid media or solid media, so nutrient-rich media or new media that contains just your basic chemical nutrients for your organism of interest to survive on. I use liquid media or I'll use a type of more solid media called agar. Basically, I'm creating almost like this synthetic environment and trying to replicate something that would happen inside of, for example, the human host that I'm studying. Or in this case, like I look at macrophages, so I may be trying to replicate something outside of what would be in the host. Ex vivo would be taking a cell out of a living organism and then studying the interactions of your microbe within that cell. In my case, I work with macrophages and I look at interactions between my bacteria and the macrophages. That would be ex vivo. And then in vivo would be studying the interactions of my microorganism within a host model like a mouse. So within an animal or a or living organism that I haven't altered except adding the microorganism. But that would be an example of in vivo. Thanks for explaining the differences between in vitro, ex vitro, and in vivo. So I understand whenever you take a cell, how you can manipulate the pH environment. However, whenever you're doing this inside a mouse, I don't imagine that you can like inject acid into the mouse. How would you change the pH environment for an in vivo study? When we're working with a cell and looking at the cell microbe interaction, or we're looking at an animal microbe interaction, we can't really just go and change the pH. We're reliant on that cell or that animal's own internal biology to modulate the pH in its own way. Inherently, we do, and probably a question you might be thinking right now is like, well, how can you tell if you're not doing anything to it? Like, how can you tell that the pH is changing or anything? Well, there's been studies done in the past, and I'm going to use tuberculosis as an example with a bacteria that causes tuberculosis that there's been studies in the past to look at its response to changes in pH inside the host. And so we have tools that we can use to essentially look and see what the pH or how the pH is changing internally in both cells and in like a mouse model, for example. And so on the cellular level, we have been able to see that inherently in some of these parts of the cell are mildly acidic or extremely acidic environments. And we know that the bacteria, just by looking underneath a microscope, we can see the bacteria inside these cells and be able to say, oh, it's inside this part of the cell that's usually this level of pH. So we know that when the bacteria is taken up by the macrophage, it's taken up into a compartment called the phagosome. And it's basically just a fancy name for this compartment that is holding the bacteria. And we know that this compartment is a mildly acidic environment. It's about 
pH 6.2, 6.3. And it's that mild acidity that mycobacterium tuberculosis is able to sense. So when it's being taken into the body, taken into the lungs, those are neutral environments. And then when it's taken into the macrophage, it's in a slightly more acidic environment inside of that phagosome compartment. Because we know that the phagosome is a mildly acidic compartment. What happens then, the body senses that it's been infected by the bacteria. It wants to kill the bacteria. And so one of the ways it does so is basically trafficking this phagosome compartment inside the cell to a much more acidic compartment called the lysosome. And it forms this fused phagolysosomal compartment. And this lysosomal compartment is extremely acidic. It's about pH 4.5. And that's what can really kill a lot of bacterial pathogens, just that extreme acidity. But during the course of this process, mycobacterium tuberculosis, A, can sense it, these changes. B, it has mechanisms in place to stop that from happening initially. And then even when the cell still tries to traffic it to a much more acidic lysosome, it can still survive in that extremely acidic environment because it's had the opportunity to sense that and be able to adapt to those changes in pH. Thank you for breaking down that really complicated idea into a way that is understandable by our audience. I think we all really appreciate that. Regarding the effect that the pH has on the cells, how do you actually tell whether or not the pH is making a change on the cells? This is kind of getting a little bit into the nitty gritty, I think, of where I'm coming into or what some of my lab has directly researched, both with my research and with previous grad students' research. So one of the ways or one of the tools we use to try and identify these changes in pH is what we call transcriptional profiling. Another word for it is RNA sequencing. And essentially, those are big words that describe our ability to look at genetic changes that are happening on the bacterial level. And and you can use these tools, you know, both you could look at the macrophage side of things and what's happening with the macrophage, genetic response or genetic changes in genetic regulation. In my case, we've looked more at the bacterial side of things, or that's kind of where my lab is focused on. But that's just one example. We can basically look at how the bacteria is responding by the genes that it's turning on and the genes that it's turning off and everything in between. That makes sense to me. Whenever you're doing your mouse models and your in vivo experiments with the mice, are you able to trace the myobacterium tuberculosis? For example, can you tag something that's fluorescent onto it and then be able to image it within the mice to see how the infection is spreading and maybe even see where it's going in the cells? Oh, absolutely. So our lab, I don't think anyone directly in my lab has done this during my time here yet, but I think it's definitely been a topic that's been approached. And I think there are definitely really cool ideas and approaches that I can see my lab utilizing in the future. But to answer your question, absolutely, yes, this has been done, not just in tuberculosis labs, but in a lot of bacterial and microbial labs, the ability to fluorescently label your microbe of interest and in fact, your host model or mouse or rat or whatever, you know, the host that you're looking at. 
I think Dr. Jonathan Hardy's lab actually does a lot of this on campus. I've seen some of his students' presentations where they've shown their research where they're imaging inside of the host animal or host animal organ with labeled microbes. It still blows my mind how you're able to actually tag proteins and track them throughout the cycle of your analysis. How does your team actually do this? Is there a method that is common across all the laboratories that use fluorescent labeling? Or is there something that your lab does that's special towards tagging your proteins? Yeah. The bacterial strains we have that have these fluorescently tagged proteins is a pretty ubiquitously used technique, not just in our lab, like our lab has used it quite a bit, but a lot of labs use this approach. And I guess to speak particularly in our lab, several years before I joined, our lab did what we call a high throughput screen. And essentially that is looking for potential drug candidates or chemical compounds that can kill mycobacterium tuberculosis in this giant library of thousands and thousands of these compounds. And one way to look and basically tailor, is it killing the bug? In our case, we wanted to see if it was targeting some specific pathways that we were interested in looking at in the bug. And we use fluorescently labeled strains of mycobacterium tuberculosis in order to do this, in order to visually see the effect of these compounds that we were looking at. In our fluorescently labeled bacteria, what happens is in place of a protein, we put this green fluorescent protein. And so when normally that certain protein would get made inside of the bacteria, instead what's happening is the bacteria is making this fluorescently or this green fluorescent protein. And so it fluoresces green and we can visualize it then essentially being produced inside of the bacteria. Thanks for explaining that, Shelby. I don't think anyone has ever really explained what it means to fluorescently tag something on our episodes. I want to hear more about your ex vivo studies, though, because that's another thing that we haven't really delved too much into. You had mentioned earlier that ex vivo is where you're taking a cell from a living organism and then you're studying the interactions that are occurring. Whenever you're taking this cell from that organism, is that the same mice that you're originally studying with the in vivo experiments? We do get our macrophages from a mouse host, and we do get our macrophages from the bone marrow where macrophages originate from and where we get our macrophage cells from. Your PhD has culminated in the results of all of these different experiments that you've been doing, but what interesting conclusions have you gathered from these three experiments that you've been running on tuberculosis? I'm very passionate about this particular project. And so it relates back to trying to understand pH or mycobacterium tuberculosis ability to survive in acidic environments. But it also brings in another aspect, which is nutrient availability or the nutrients that we give the bacteria. So I'm talking about this basically from my in vitro studies that I've done. Because in those studies, I can modulate and change what type of nutrients I am giving the bacteria. And in those studies, what we have found is that when mycobacterium tuberculosis is grown in an acidic environment or an acidic liquid media, it will slow its growth. And it does so as a means of adaptation to that environment. 
when it's inside the host, its ability to slow its growth inside the host is kind of, it, it saves it essentially from being eradicated inside the host. It's not using all of these pathways that it needs, kind of shutting things down. But what we also observed is that this is also a nutrient-specific observation. So what I mean by that is when we are growing our bacteria in liquid media, we give it a bunch of different carbon sources. And what we found in our lab is that certain carbon sources allow for growth and certain carbon sources, the bacteria exhibits that slowed growth. And so it's really kind of this modulatory observation that is both pH dependent and nutrient source dependent. So that has been like a culmination of observations from both in part a little bit of my research and more so from a previous graduate student's research. But what I have come to then more directly research is our main hypothesis with all of this was that, okay, the bacteria, when we grow it in this specific type of media where we're controlling the type of nutrients it's getting, it's an acidic environment. Despite all of that, the bug has everything it needs to grow, yet it's slowing its growth. So we hypothesize that this must be a genetically controlled phenotype. And so what we mean by that is that the bug has some sort of genes or some sort of pathway that's controlling this observation that we're seeing. So what I did then is I did a set of screens looking for essentially mutants in mycobacterium tuberculosis that couldn't slow their growth in this acidic environment. And through this work, I was able to identify a distinct mutation that did allow for the bacteria to grow very well in this acidic environment. I'm not surprised that you're saying that different nutrient sources can modulate growth because I've seen it a lot on different papers that I've read, just really how important it is for the environment to have the proper nutrient sources and how if there's too much of something, it can be really bad and as well as too little of a nutrient source that can be very bad for the cells as well. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Before you go, would you be able to tell us a little bit about things that you do outside of research? For example, are you involved in anything outside of lab on campus? I would say a lot of my activities are probably campus related. I am pretty involved with our graduate student workshop on campus, having taken on like different volunteer roles. I have volunteered and worked with MSU SciFest. That's usually put on in the spring, which is, if you've never been, definitely go. It's a fun experience, different booths with different scientific activities. And our department does have a booth, but it's all like volunteer based and, and we put on cool little activities for kids. I am also involved with the MSU SciComm on their policy committee. And then outside of everything campus, I am an avid hiker. My significant other and I, he's a native Michigander. I am from the flatland of Nebraska. So even though Michigan, I guess, is somewhat relatively flat, it is quite hilly here for me. So I've definitely taken advantage of the outside excursions and all that Michigan has to offer. And my significant other is a native Michigander. So I've been fortunate there to have been exposed to the greater outdoors, which I would consider definitely like a hobby and my little getaway from Lansing campus research. It's great. Yeah, thank you so much, Shelby. I really appreciate you for inviting me to talk to the microbiology graduate students last semester about my work in science communication. And you are very right that MSU Science Festival is a wonderful experience. It happens every year in April, and this year it'll be virtual and free. So I highly encourage everyone of all ages to check that out. 
And I really do agree with you about hiking in Michigan. It is really so wonderful, especially because I too and Danny as well both came from the flatlands, but of Florida. So Michigan is really a different environment that we truly enjoy. Thanks again for joining us to talk about your research, Shelby, and good luck on your future research. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a great experience. Definitely enjoy talking about mycobacterium tuberculosis and tuberculosis and then disease and the research that I do. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.